0: I'm Keith Klein, host of the VentureFist podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 141, and today's guest is Nicole Sahin, CEO and founder of Globalization Partners. International expansion can be a tremendous opportunity for companies, but it is also something that's incredibly complex in terms of hiring employees in different countries. When you factor in the various legal, tax, and HR regulations that of course vary from location to location, it is a major undertaking that requires a lot of time, knowledge, and money. Nicole is an experienced entrepreneur, traveler, and philanthropist who started her first company in the Caribbean right out of college. Much later, after gaining industry experience in the software industry, she founded Globalization Partners to address this key. Issue of international expansion. Through its global expansion platform, they make it easy to hire employees in more than 170 countries. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics like Nicole's experience building schools in underdeveloped countries, her background story and professional journey, what led Nicole to start Globalization Partners, and how their platform is solving the challenges of hiring and expanding internationally, advice for founders on getting press and coverage from the media, thoughts on building a more diverse and inclusive leadership team, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, the VentureFizz job board is absolutely on fire. There are so many amazing opportunities to check out across the hottest tech companies in both Boston and New York City. You'll find positions at all levels of experience across all job functions like product, engineering, sales, marketing, customer success, user experience, and more. Go to VentureFizz.com backslash jobs to start exploring. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Nicole. Nicole, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you about your background and we're gonna learn a lot about uh, your company, Globalization Partners, and what you guys are doing. But uh, before we get into that, uh, I noticed through your uh, history, you've done a lot as it relates to building schools in underdeveloped countries. So talk about your experience in that and kind of what led you down the path of of creating these really meaningful efforts.
1: Thank you, yeah. Well, I'm a traveler. I'm a traveler, and I've always enjoyed traveling all over the world. And, you know, I've enjoyed, I've had the opportunity to travel in in countries that are still very much developing. Um, It's part of the UN development goals to end extreme poverty by the end of 2030. And and that's incredible. Like, um, if I look back at 20 years ago, when I started traveling, the level of extreme poverty was almost 20% of the world population. Now, it's only 10%. Wow, Which is just a huge, that's I mean, amazing. like, yeah, it's incredible. It's incredible, especially when the population of the world's growing. So we're only, so extreme poverty is only about 10% of people now, and usually it's in war-torn countries. Mm-hmm. And the idea that we can get all the way to zero in the course of our lifetime is just something I really want to contribute to and be a part of. Like, that's pretty cool. Um, and so I think that the long-term way to end extreme poverty, you know, people through literacy and through any type of basically through literacy and education, people are able to lift themselves and their families out of poverty. Um, and there's a lot of studies that have shown that to be true, especially if you educate girls and women, they're able to take better care of their kids. So simply simple things like, you know, making sure the family has access to clean water, or understanding a little bit more about nutrition. Uh, it just makes huge changes for the whole family. So I got involved with, um, helping to set up a school in Cambodia about seven years ago and doing some fundraising for that. And Cambodia is a country where at that time, at least more than 50% of the kids under the age of five would die from waterborne illness before the age of five. But if you could teach people in rural communities how to speak English, they would have the ability to access the tourist trade. And that helped girls and women avoid you know, other, other types of, you know, the, really the tourist trade can, can be other things too, right? Um, they have a problem with sex trafficking in that country. So we thought by giving, by giving everybody access to education, they would have a much better opportunity to future career growth. Um, we built the school to leap over the digital divide, meaning that they had access to internet technology, uh, solar power, a water well in that community. And so the idea was just by building one simple school, we could make a huge impact on, on that community's life. I've since joined the board of a group that does the same similar projects in uh, Central America and the organization name is School of the World and what you can do I mean with a foreign donor donating fifteen thousand dollars they can make a huge impact on an entire community's education and uh, the ability for a community to develop so it's just something I'm personally interested in and find a lot of meaning.
0: in. I, I mean, amazing, amazing experience. I, mean, I, I did notice, you know, you've obviously traveled the world, which makes sense for what you're doing for your company, but, uh, just to, you know, take that time and initiative and, and to, uh, you know, give back to these you know, countries. It's just amazing. So kudos to you for taking the time, effort and energy and that, you know, entrepreneurial spirit to, uh, to accomplish such a meaningful mission. Thank you. Thank you. Well, let's, let's rewind the clock. So, uh, so, where did you grow up? You know, what were you like as a kid? You know, what did your mom, dad, or even relatives do? Uh, you know, kind of your foundational story.
1: Sure. So I'm from St. Louis, Missouri, originally, and my parents are both business people, and I would say a bit entrepreneurial themselves. Um, my mom owned a flower shop when I was growing up, so she did um, flowers for weddings, and my dad, uh, and out of a business that she and her best friend started out of our basement. And they became quite well known and they, they, always, they always did that. Um, and then my dad was the president of a bank, uh, a farmer's credit union. And um, he did that, he did that throughout his career and really, he started out, you know, he was in the military, he was in the Vietnam War. And when he got back, he just said, you know, I never want my family to have to go through anything like that. He's great at finance and, and you know, went all the way to the top of a corporate ladder in finance.
0: And I heard an interesting story about your grandmother too.
1: Yes so my grandma was the six six women in the country six women in the country to join the navy uh when world war 2 started and in fact she met my grandfather by handing him a um handing him a parachute before he jumped out of a plane and telling him if this doesn't work come back and find me and she Get out. Her, Yeah and she let him That's know how awesome. to contact her yeah so um yeah she was very very adventurous
0: very that is adventurous. So cool
1: Yeah thank you and so I think, you know, something fun about being American is like, we all have that in our background, right? Like somebody had to move here, unless you're fully Native American, somebody had to move here, be an entrepreneur, strike out for a new life, leave everything behind. So I think that's really part of all of our DNA here.
0: Well, how about your your professional journey? So, um, you know, obviously you are an entrepreneur, but, you know, how did that foundation start to build uh, in terms of your experience, whether it was out of school or just kind of, you know, how you kind of got, got started?
1: Sure. So when I when I um, when I finished my I finished an MBA uh, many years ago, too many to count. (laughs) And uh, I finished an MBA and I signed on board with a man in a dream. And it was it was another entrepreneur, a guy named Larry Harding, who was starting a consulting company and he wanted to help other companies expand internationally. This was right after the, you know, dot, you know, like telecommunications were expanding like wildfire at that time. Um, because the internet had become by then quite well more adopted and the idea that you could hire people around the globe and that ideas were flying around the globe really quickly was A, you had to grab market share as fast as you can and, uh, and suddenly uh, co- investors were, were compelling their, their portfolio companies to go, go global and grab global market share as quickly as they can. The idea for that business was that we were a drop-in international finance, HR, and legal team. And we would uh, work with like Tesla, for example, or, you know, Duke University or any organization that needed to hire employees in another country and still be compliant, mostly high growth tech companies. But, um, you know, a company like that would call and they'd say, look, we need to hire two people in Singapore, two people in China and two people in Brazil and, and maybe one person in the UK. And my job would be to say, "Okay, you have to set up this type of company in Brazil before you can hire even one employee. It's going to take a year and $100,000, and then you have to take care of accounting, payroll, tax compliance for that entity, and and sign an office lease and all this other stuff. Um, And so to set up a whole company in another country just to hire one person was the name of the game, and we would go set up those, those entities for our clients all over the globe. But it was super expensive and very frustrating for our clients to have to figure out and navigate all of these laws around the globe. Mm -hmm. After doing that for six years, I thought, my God, I've set up 100 companies in the UK and 60 companies in China and 40 companies in Brazil. And if I could just set up one company in each country and give all of our clients access to it, I would have a much more scalable business model. Got it. So I didn't know if that business model could be structured in a way that was legally and tax compliant globally for our clients to expand internationally and I left High Street Partners. Um, By that time we were 200 people and it had been about six years and we had won all the awards for high growth companies and had a great time consulting to companies internationally. Um, And anyway, I left the company and traveled for a year and met with tax advisors and lawyers around the world to kind of lay out the foundation for this business model and ultimately ascertained that it could be done. And it was in, in most countries it could be done, but it was gonna be, it was complicated. But it could it could work um that was about seven years ago uh at this time we have about 700 clients we have we employ you know a couple thousand people on behalf of our clients all over the world and the business model is established and, and runs very effectively and very well i have a killer legal team mm-hmm. uh an international tax team who have really laid the foundation for what is still a nascent industry But we help some of the fastest growing uh, high growth companies in the world, like brand names like Meetup and Yelp, um, grab global market share. And some of them have, you know, and I think the reason they love our platform is because, first of all, we take great care of the people they want to hire around the globe. And we employ people on their behalf in all of these countries. So, you know, we had one client who employed people on our behalf in 20 countries, and they never had to set up a, a global corporate infrastructure. You know, they'd never had to deal with figuring out all the legal and tax issues around the globe, but yet they were able to hire salespeople in all of those countries and ultimately grab, grab market share in all those countries.
0: Well, so you talked about this a little bit when you were at High Street Partners, The you noticed this issue. So what what, you know, before globalization partners existed, what would companies have to do? Like, how do you even get started to build a corporate entity in a different country? And so would you have to contact like a, a lawyer and yeah,
1: so like for Brazil or China, for example, you would work with a lawyer and an accountant in country and a payroll provider in country uh, and set up a company in country, which again takes six to 12 months. You have to sign an office lease before you do it. Then you have to get your bank account in country live. You have to figure out payroll. You have to figure out all the employment laws in country and structure an employment contract. So usually it'd be about a year and about a hundred thousand emails to set up the company and a huge investment. And by that time, a lot of times, you know, the employee that you initially wanted to hire is gone, right? Or maybe you've decided like, we don't really need to expand into China. Mm. Whereas meanwhile, we've had other clients who because they're working with our platform and they can identify who they want to hire and we put them on our payroll within a couple business days. You know, if you think about the year, they're already in country, you know, and I think it's a really low risk way for our clients to expand globally too. I actually had a client from a huge like Fortune 1000 company who said, "Wow, I, I have a million dollar budget to go into Africa, um, and I was going to do a huge market study, but I could just hire ten people who I think are really talented, like one person from each country, and see who's able to be effective and actually have some results within a year with your platform."
0: Yeah, I would think like the the compliance laws too. Are, I mean, it's it's tough enough keeping track of the United States laws, never mind multiple countries and you know obviously if you're not com- in compliance you're going to get some type of penalty or fine or something.
1: Exactly yeah and I mean I think the risk is higher and higher you know governments are trying to keep track of things and like there's GDPR compliance and there's um data you know so it's data privacy there's uh, you know like when you have a company in another country if you're a certain size you have to have an audit for that entity each year. So we have audits going in all the countries in which we operate every year. You know, it's just a lot from a finance and administrative perspective. And then there's also just the complexity around structuring corporate tax issues and and that type of thing. Um, So it's mostly it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. And I think there's also there's the one thing, which is the time and complexity of figuring it out. And then there's also there is the cost. But I think it's more the risk of getting it wrong. It's just like nobody likes that um whereas for us you know, for me one thing that's always been incredibly important is running a well-run business you know i i knew the market opportunity would be there if i could figure it out but i wanted to run a company where our clients were happy our employees are happy and the people that we engage on behalf of our clients around the globe are happy we call that the triple bottom line um and the uh you know i'm happy to say that our the employees who whom we engage on behalf of our clients around the globe have 96 percent satisfaction ratings our clients have a ninety-four percent client satisfaction rating. We almost never lose clients, so um, so yeah, our clients are really happy with our service, and it's a you know, and our and our internal team is quite happy too. So that makes it fun to run a company.
0: And from what I've gathered, this is a $170 billion market that your company is is involved in. So so how do, how do you scale it? Like, I mean, so yeah, you're helping companies scale to other countries, but there's the scaling of globalization partners to begin with. So how have you gone about scaling the company?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm really lucky because I always had great people on board from day one and have a really strong executive team. Um, I think it comes down to there are people and there's a playbook for people who have been there, done that. They've never actually done this exact thing but they there's kind of a playbook for for you know managing high levels of growth and I think that that really comes down to hiring incredible people well ahead of the curve and long before you need them. I also think it comes down to technology you know software and automation we're very fortunate to be part of this generation where we have cool products being uh, released literally every day that can help us scale our companies yeah.
0: Yeah, no, that's it's definitely a huge help. Like what you can like plug in now in terms of, you know, technology to get your business up and running. Like I remember, you know, I, you know, you used to have to deal with ADP and paychecks here and now Gusto is just like plug and play and it's just up and running in like no time. So they just totally changed basic things like just like payroll. Now, right. what about growing your business? Like the, the funding side, like how have you gone about... You know, growing it. Uh, you know, from what I gathered, I didn't see that. You know, I'd re- you'd raised outside capital, unless I was wrong.
1: No, we haven't. Uh, we funded the company primarily based on revenue.
0: And um, imagine that.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know we're profitable. Really? <laughs> I know it's shocking, right? It's shocking. I know. I was watching the news about uh, WeWork today. Yeah, I'm like, Oof, that's crazy. Yeah, you know, like I mean, I think that I think that the era of um, running a non-profitable business. I think there needs to be a wake up call. I don't think that's a healthier, that doesn't make sense to me as a business person. Um, so I think, I think the pendulum is probably going to swing in the other direction.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think there needs to be a a path, right? Like, I saw Airbnb announced that they're going going to go public next year, but they're, I think they're profitable if I remember correctly. So, you know, they've spent a long time perfecting our business. And I think the CEO said, you know, we spent two years, to prepare for our IPO. So it's just like they're doing it the right way of yeah. building, uh, you know, they've burned through a lot of cash to get there, but there was a path. So right. There's right. a fundamentally responsible way of, of doing it, you know, through that, those types of means of outside capital. But, but I, I mean, so. th- you highlighted this, which is something I picked up on. You know, you have your triple bottom line philosophy, which, you know, again, that goes back to the roots of building a sustainable, meaningful business that customers uh, value and want to pay for
1: Right. Right. I agree, I agree, thank you, yeah, yeah, and i I think too that there is something there I, you know so there's a lot of publicity right now um, around CEOs saying that companies have a responsibility to more than their shareholders. I think that's true, I think we 're all responsible for what we put out in the world and what we create, and it makes it a lot more fun to to be selling something that you know is making a big impact on their on your clients' lives
0: so how does how does it actually work? Um, Cause you're not actually involved with the hiring of the employee. So, so if I was looking to do venture viz London, Mm -hmm. so I I would, and I was going to hire a salesperson there. So I would actually be responsible for identifying that person, hiring the person. And then I kind of, once we're having an agreement in place of, you know, the terms and salary, whatever, then I would uh, contact your organization and you would handle things from there.
1: Exactly. Yeah, it varies a little bit by country because of the way things are legally structured on the back end. I mean, obviously we have to be compliant in each country, but by and large, yeah, our clients figure out who they want to hire, and and say, hey, I want to, I want to engage with this person through Globalization Partners, um, and then we we have we we put that in, we so the clients, as you said, they, they reach basic terms. There may be a few edits. For example, we can usually offer way better benefits than our clients ever could independently. Um, so things like that, but yeah, they contact us, they say, I want to hire this person. We reach out to the employee with a locally compliant employment contract, our benefits package, our local HR person in country, uh, communicates with that person, make sure they feel comfortable. And then, and then that's it. Yeah. The the employee is usually on the client's, uh, the client's email system. The email server has a direct manager at the client's, you know, at headquarters. So for all intents and purposes, they, they really are part of that organization legally they're part of ours right. yeah
0: so what's, what's the um, size of your company in terms of you know direct employees that are working you know for kind of like the cooperation of what you do and what's your plans for growth uh, ahead
1: right so we're about 165 people internally as of today in about 20 or 25 countries I'm losing count uh, <laughs> because and um, in about 20 or 25 countries and uh, we're trying to hire about 40 more before the end of this year and so wow for our Q4 hiring plans. So we're usually adding about 15 people a month right now,
0: internally. And is that hiring kind of across the board, all different job functions or?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's sales, client services and tech primarily. Yeah, at this point, at this point.
0: Now, one of the things that I've noticed is you've done a great job of building, um, you know, a great brand. For you know, you're out there speaking a lot at um, you know different outlets. You know, coverage in Inc. and Forbes. So, what advice would you give to other founders on you know getting that type of you know high visibility coverage?
1: I yeah, I mean, so we don't have a PR agency at this time. I actually think that. Um, I actually think that reporters are people, too, of course, and they want to speak with people who are passionate about what they do and have an interesting story to tell. And the best outreach is done by me or, or by, you know, we have Karen who manages PR internally for us uh, for about the last six months. But in general, yeah, reporters want to talk to the founder. You know, they want to talk to the CEO and hear a good story. And, um, and if you have a good story, they, they're happy to cover it because they're, they, you know reporters are looking for good stories
0: so do you allocate like a certain percentage and i know it's a moving target of you know week to week or month to month but do you try to allocate a certain amount of time for that type of you know media coverage
1: um i think i have a feeling it's a couple hours a week yeah and then um i do think there's a there's a playbook of all the contests that, and awards so there's like the um, entrepreneur of the year award i think that's a really good one to get involved in there's the deloitte fast 50 the local business journals, fastest growing company awards. And I think getting your name in those, those lists is incredibly important as well.
0: Yeah. So, um, you know, globalization partners, technically is not your first company. So, um, so, so you, you actually started something where I was a little, little jealous. So you were in uh, St. Thomas in, in the Virgin. Yeah. So you started a company that was actually focused on, uh, Yoga retreats, right? So 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 what was that company about? Like so so much
1: fun. So I um I graduated college right before about six months before 9-11. And I went and traveled in Guatemala for some period of time. And when I came back to the United States, um, it was right after 9-11. And basically, you know, I think I was part of a generation of college kids who there was no there were no jobs after that Mm -hmm. because the economy really shut down and especially in St. Louis. So um, So yeah, I basically thought, my gosh, if all I'm doing is bartending and teaching yoga, I can go do that in the Caribbean. And I moved to St. Thomas and opened up a yoga retreat outsourcing business. And what I learned about myself is I was really, really good at running a business, running programs, doing marketing and doing all of these things. But what I also learned is that I didn't want to live in the Caribbean forever. Um, I know it's, it sounds like heaven, but when you're 22 or 23, um, it's just not, it wasn't plugged in enough for me. It's like the idea of being on vacation forever and living this lifestyle was more, more good in my, more better in my dreams than in my reality. And so, um, and then I also realized I really did not know how to run a business, you know, in terms of like filing corporate tax returns and and like some of the business fundamentals. So I recognized that I was an entrepreneur. And, uh, but that I really wanted to focus on more international work. So I left the Caribbean and went and got an MBA at the Monterey Institute of internet of international studies, which is the Middlebury graduate school in Monterey, California.
0: Got it. Yeah. Yeah. uh, So, uh, so I, I was, um, my wife and I were traveling, we were in St. Thomas and we did like a, you know, a boat cruise and, uh, just, you know, similar thing where I, you know, and this is probably, you know, 10 years out of college type of thing where the, First mate of the the boat was someone I actually went to college with, and I'm like, "What what are you doing here?" <laughs> He's like, "You know, what? I just packed up and uh, moved to the Caribbean." I'm like, "Wow, yeah." That's cool. But he stuck it's around. Awesome. Well, so he yeah. stuck around. It sounds like I would have liked to have done what you did. Just a couple years, just kind of have you know, just kind of an interesting excursion, but uh, come back and get your MBA, and you know.
1: Yeah. And I didn't know that was the plan. You know, I think sometimes life stories unfold as you go, you know, and like you try a little of this and a little bit of that. And then suddenly one day you realize, you know, I don't realize this is for me and it doesn't necessarily feel that good when you make that, when you draw that conclusion the first time, but then, um, but then you you keep going on your way and find the next thing.
0: Another question I want to ask Nicole is, um, you know, you touched upon your leadership team. Um, So like your leadership team is predominantly female which is uh, not the norm in the tech industry, which um, we need it to become more of the norm. So, so what advice would you give to other founders on, you know, kind of building that uh, diversity and inclusion, you know, foundation of, of, of a leadership team?
1: Yeah. Um, well, I think it's really important to focus on it. Um, and I mean, we're actually having, we have the same problem in the opposite direction and that like actually having an all-female executive team or mostly female executive team isn't that diverse either. Um, but we just get credit for it instead of the opposite. But yeah, it's, we're actually, you know, looking for a few key people and it's something that's on my mind all the time. I think that we actually reached a point in the early days just because we did have a female founding team that we we're getting so many applicants from female employees that we had to make a conscious decision to stop hiring from our network. This was when we were like 20 employees because we were like, yeah, this is great that we're like 75% female now and it's fun. But like, realistically there's like when we're 30 people and it's all women, what guy is going to want to join the company? And that's going to be a real problem for us. Um, so we were very careful to stop hiring from our network and, um, and to be more conscious to make sure that we had diversity candidates, not just with gender, but all types of diversity candidates for every role that we fill. And now we're pretty diverse. People walk into the company and they, they comment on it actually. They're like, wow, for a tech company in Boston, I've never seen such a diverse group at headquarters. Um, and yet I still like, well, like if, a, if one department or group all starts to look the same, I'll tap the leader of that group on the shoulder and say, Hey, I noticed like you're hiring a lot of people who all look the same. And usually if you just say, I know you, you don't have any unconscious bias because I know you're very cognizant of that, but it would start to appear. So if you're not careful, so you might want to be mindful as you continue to hire in your department. And then they, they kind of hear, hear that and are, are very conscious of it going forward.
0: Well, so you know, when you started Globalization Partners, you know, you did have more experience. But yeah. what, what were some of the key, like uh, you know, challenges or, or lessons learned uh, in the early days of building the company? That looking back, you're like, wow, if only I had done that differently, or things you'd want other entrepreneurs to know about.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the big thing is always stepping out for the first time. Is like, this is my business. I had closed millions and millions of dollars for in business for my previous company. I was the primary rainmaker of that business. And, but yet when I signed my first contract with globalization partners, I think it was, it was tiny. It was like a $6,000 contract. I cried and called my mom and it was ridiculous. (laughs) I was like, yes, someone wants to work with me, you know? And I think it's ridiculous. Uh, But, but it really was so meaningful, you know that somebody trusted me. Um, I also think the people who come out of the woodwork to help you as a founder and entrepreneur are not the people you expect. You know, I, I thought my former colleagues would support me and, you know, other people would support me, you know, like the tried and true people that have been in your network would be the biggest supporters. And indeed it was actually like people who I didn't expect to help me crawled out of the woodwork to help and were like sending me referrals and really helping me build my business. So that was amazing. Um, and finally, I would say another big lesson learned is to run the business for, to, to you know, run the business for yourself exactly as you would anyone else, you know, and, and not take, not, not, you know, let allowances for people because, uh, because you know them or something like that. Like you have to run your business as a business and not as a personal, uh, not, not, not as a personal contract type thing. It didn't take long to figure that out, but like, People who aren't paying their bills, like if you would, if you would terminate the contract as you would with the with some, for, if you work for somebody else, you got to do it for yourself too. Yeah. I think one of the joys is actually the freedom to also decide who you will and will not work with, and like to be really strong within your integrity and your ethics, and just say, you know what, like we we have internally a no jerks policy. You know, we we it's only happened, I think once that i can remember in many years but like where a client was just way out of line in the way they were treating my team and it was just like you know this isn't working for us and we have to walk away and that type of freedom to do that and make that type of decision is really powerful and important to me personally
0: yeah no that's great great advice and feedback and i just it brought me back to uh you know when you were talking about that first contract you signed that someone wants to to work with you and it's exciting so when i launched venture fizz you, know, you just put it out there and I'm like, okay, see what happens. And the very first day, someone actually purchased because we had individual job postings at first it was our model. And this guy, Joe Goss from Nobel, if he's listening, like I'll never forget, like he purchased a job the first day we launched, and I'm like, oh, somebody bought a job. I was just like yeah blown It's away. Like, like
1: everything, <laughs> even so though you've God. probably been doing it before then. Yeah, it's so meaningful. It's, it's so, so meaningful.
0: Yeah. Uh, so w- what about stepping away from the business though cuz you know running a business is very time consuming and can be all consuming so um like how do you like unplug and kind of you know recharge the batteries and you know kind yeah. of through your thoughts
1: i personally like i think a lot of time off is necessary especially as the ceo and i don't mean off fully like just go check out or something but like um I think a, a CEO's job is, well, it depends. Like there's different stages of being in the business. So when you're a small company, you're doing everything and you just can't really take that much time off and you don't really have time to think more than do you're doing. Um, but as the company grows now, like I said, we're about 165 people. I have a fully built out executive team who basically know how to run their domains better than I could run them for them. And so um, My job is to think strategically and lead the business into the future and and manage the executive team and make sure they're delivering according to our agreed upon goals. So in order to have brain space to think strategically, yeah, I have to make time for that. And so um, I like to go walk around the city a lot. I do a lot of yoga, you know, um, like to work out and play squash and that type of thing. And then spend time with my family. And occasionally go on, you know, travel a little bit because I have to travel all over for business. So I might as well have some fun when I'm there, too.
0: So you have traveled to many, many places. But what, what are your two favorite places that you've uh, you know, visited and that, you know, you would recommend?
1: That's a good question. Well, I had the great fortune of visiting Tanzania. Um about six months ago and uh, loved it so much. First of all, in my mind, it had always been this like really far away destination that had to be saved up for a very special occasion. And it was my 10 year wedding anniversary. And um, it, it is just so amazing and so vibrant and so alive and so beautiful to know that this place exists. And it's so like, You're gonna get eaten if you walk out of your tent at night by yourself type thing like it's crazy um we were actually we took this little tiny plane into the serengeti and as the pilot tried to land the plane he had to circle back around the airfield three times because there was a there were wildebeest crossing a migration of wildebeest crossing the airfield so (laughs) like on the second time up i was like asked my husband like please look at the gas tank because i'm too scared to look like do we Uh have enough fuel to get through this like it's just crazy Um, And like nature is in charge of everything. Another country I really love. Well, geez, gosh, there's so many, but um, I love being in uh, Vietnam. I think it's just really, you can feel this energy in the air, like the Silicon Valley of like people being entrepreneurial and like excited about the development of the country. It's a lovely, really community oriented culture. And um, it's up and coming, you know, and it's, it's beautiful and exciting.
0: Well, Nicole, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through all your background in terms of your professional history. And, of course, all the great things you and your team at Globalization Partners are up to.
1: Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here. And I'm just such a fan of Venture Fizz as well. So congratulations to you also on this amazing organization that you've built and that everybody's heard of
0: in this community over the years. Well, thanks. Thanks so much for all your support.